You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On today's show, Mario Batali. What more can I say? What more do I need to say? So let's do this thing. All right, so Batali, I, I hear you just got back from New Orleans. I did. With your two sons. Two sons. And Benno and Leo, and 19 how- and 17, <laughs> both with fake IDs that work in that town. <laughs> well, I didn't, where do you get those from? I or- think they buy them in college, like at the candy store. Yeah, now, Benno, which one's in college? Benno's at University of Michigan. All right, so that's that's a good school. Fantastic school. Yeah. And you went to Rutgers. I many, went to Rutgers. Many years the ago. The State University of New Jersey, as it were. <laughs> so you have teenagers. I have an eight-year-old son. How do, in terms of growing up, and this is, uh, this is a serious question, like, you want your kids to have fun, and you want them to partake in the, the indulgences that you did as a teenager, but you also want them to get good grades and get into a good university. How, right. how did you manage that as a dad, you know? You know, the, the kids are so driven by their schools in New York City and their buddies on the playground or on the football field or at the Rocket Science Club. Um I would say that they were driven by themselves. I mean, you know, we always told them how important it was to study and do well in education, but it wasn't like God. The A is the only thing that matters. Yeah. It was there was a lot of other things, a lot of other things that mattered in our lives, and it's learning how to be kind. It's learning how to not be a bully. It's learning how to be a cool kid. What'd you eat in New Orleans? You know, best thing you ate. Best thing you ate. Best thing I ate was probably um, either a cobia collar. At pesh. And that's a fish. That's a fish, and it's the neck bone of it. So it's yeah. got all this succulent flesh, and they grill it, and it stays real moist. I love that. When did that, when did that become a thing in American restaurants, the collar? And I assume that was from it, sushi sort of Yeah, situation? sushi restaurants. Yeah. And anybody that went to Skiji Market would have tasted that because it's a really good thing. Skiji being in Tokyo. The exactly, big, yeah. the big sushi market in Japan. But I would say, you know, collar's still a tough sell at a fancy restaurant because uh-huh. it's just not very presentable. It looks just like it imagines. Yeah. looks like... Two kind, of, two kind of, uh, yeah, like the, if you took a shirt yeah. apart. But it's got that, like, like lamb's neck. It's, that's yeah, where it's nice exactly. fatty it's and It's the softest, most and... delicious meat. And when they char it just right, and it's still a little rare right at the bone, mm. it's fantastic. All right, so that, that was at Pesh at Donald Link's restaurant, yep. um, who also owns Cochon. Right. Um, what about more street level? Did you have any po' boys, for We instance? had po' boys. Are you a fan or over- overrated or underrated oh, or just no. rated? Po' boys are the real thing. So you got to get the right ones, though. Oh, because there's a lot. What'd you go with? I went with Domelisa's. Okay. One which of the, is my one, favorite. One of the established Right, places. exactly. I mean, they say Parkside or Park Parkway. Mm-hmm. Parkway is also good. I had those last time. That said, I think that if you go to New Orleans and you find a place that isn't the one that's in the Michelin Guide or yeah. in, in the Bon Appetit Official Guide, they're still good. I think the, the core of that city is more delicious than most. And even in a place like a grocery store or a deli, you're getting a higher standard than you would in a place in particular, say in Midtown Manhattan, where a lot of places are just based on tourism. Yeah. They don't really care. I mean, if you get a Sabret hot dog, you know it's going to be good. Yeah. But if you buy a turkey sandwich, are you getting something mm. besides commercial turkey? Down no. there, it just seems like everything tastes a little bit better. Yeah, it's like getting a taco in Mexico City. It's going to be pretty good. Right, even exactly. if it's not, Even if it's not the place right. you have exactly. to go. Exactly. You know, the one on Yelp with the, the third cousin's mom shows up on Thursdays to make tortillas. It's the only one to have. So what's your go-to order, like po' boy-wise? Uh, for me, it's either the shrimp or the oyster, not the combo, because I like the oysters to be fried separate than the shrimp. But I would never have, like, a roast beef po' boy. Like, I just wouldn't Yeah, well, I don't get that. What, I, what's that, the point? That's, that's for people that maybe don't like to eat fish. A lot of people t- sometimes in cultures near the water don't eat a lot of seafood. I guess the rest so, yeah. Of them do. And then I noticed on your social media platform, I don't know if it was the Twitter or the Instagram, but you went to Commander's Palace. Yes. All right, talk to me about that, because, like, people in, in a lot of other places— 
people come to a city and they're like, oh, I don't want to go to Tavern on the Green or something. That's a cliche. But in New Orleans, you kind of have to go to Commanders or a Galatoire's, don't you? And both if you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because for them, a lot of people say, listen, I want to go to Rome, but I don't want to go to a tourist place. I'm like, you're a tourist. Rome has been a tourist city for 4,000 years. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with being a tourist. Like, go somewhere. I mean, yeah. You know what? Literally, when in Rome. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you know, yeah, maybe it's touristy and maybe it's a little glitzy, but it's banging brunch and it's so much fun. And they got a band and I mean, they're cool and funny and it's just, it, it's the right thing. And their food is delicious. Like Troy McPhail does a fantastic job. He's like, you know, James Beard award winning guy, even though they might do 1400 covers on a Sunday. But they, yeah, again, that, that they city get has a culture and standard of excellence when it right. comes to food. And, Absolutely. And, and Commanders were, were Emerald sort of right. made, his, he, made his name. That's where he, he was. Became a, Emerald. He was a breakout. Yes. <laughs> so going way back, you said you did good enough in school. So you're in college, you're trying to find yourself and you're doing well enough in school. And at what point did you think like, oh, food's kind of cool. Like, yeah, maybe I can do this as like a, a career. Like when did that My click? junior year, I realized that all of the people that were going into the finance industry, which is kind of what I, I was studying Spanish theater at the golden age and portfolio theory at the same time. And, and I love them both. And I love the study of the finance, but I realized in 1982 that that was not the field I wanted to get into. It was very, it was just, you know, it was over the top. Everything about it was weird. But um, I realized that the cooking, my parents actually suggested to me to go to cooking school instead of going to college. And I had just seen Animal House. I'm like, I'm not giving up the Animal House experience. Yeah, come on. So I went to college. It wasn't necessarily Animal House, but it was a wild and fun time. And just like my children are going to have, it's uh, often not purely curricular. It's extracurricular. And there's a lot of fun things. And I loved it. But I realized what I really liked, as much as I did when I was in high school, in junior high school, I really liked cooking. And I worked at a place called Stuff your face, which makes these delicious strombolis to this day. And I just became addicted to the kind of the, the rush of adrenaline when yeah. you're cooking together with people that you don't even have to love that much. No, like it, some it, people you dislike them. Yeah, but you're on a team. But you're on a team and the end of the day, your job has been done and you have succeeded. How often when you were in college, would you come home late night after you guys were out and cook up a bunch of food for your friends? Did you have the access like to Like four kitchens? nights a week. And what, wait, what were you making? Like or? I was like... My, my, my good buddy Jim Gandolfini had a penchant for fettuccine Alfredo. And we just thought at that point that you had to cook garlic and reduce cream, which is stupid because, in fact, it's really just butter and Parmesan cheese. <laughs> but we would reduce and reduce and cook and cook and get this right viscosity and cook it with, you know, dried DiCecco pasta because DiCecco pasta, the good one, didn't cost much more yeah. than Mueller's, the bad one. Yeah, yeah. So we had, like, you know, a grocery store in town, and we always cooked because I lived in outside of the first two years. The next two years, I lived in houses where we had great kitchens and, you know, just mm. most of my friends would come by. They would clean if I would cook. Now, were you buying, like, the good Parmesan cheese then, or were you doing the craft out of a can? We were buying the Reginito, Reginito. which was half the price, <laughs> I know that guy, yeah. but not all the way down to the green can. Um, now, does the green can sponsor you guys? Are uh, you guys ever have to worry about insulting one of your, uh, you know, advertisers? I didn't, I didn't insult it. I was just asking what <laughs> no, you were buying. I did. You did. <laughs> but Reginito, was that the one in the triangle with, like, the red, green, and white? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, from Argentina. That. Yeah, we said right, Which is a pretty good product. Yeah, it was, it was salty. Yeah. And, you, you know? and you graded it yourself. Yeah, we graded ourselves. Um, so then at... After you graduated, and then you did, then then you went to London. Is that correct to study yeah. cooking? Cordon Bleu, and uh, and worked for Mango. Uh, Cordon Bleu was not as professional as I expected. It was a little bit more of a housewife's finishing school. Mm. You know, sixty four kids. I think there were probably six boys. Wow. And, and, and you know, they were all like Americans who thought this was the place to be, and it was a good thing. And I'm you know. 
I, I, I would recommend that anybody that goes to any cooking school stay the whole time and just be the best student, be the cleanest, be the fastest, be the most prepared, because you can learn a lot even when you don't think you're learning that much. Yeah. I, it wasn't a restaurant preparation school like the CIA, yeah. but it was a good program. And, you know, I learned quite a bit. I was working at a, at a pub as a bartender to be kind of, you know, part of my income Enhancement, yeah. But also were, just I wanted to hang with English people. Yeah, you were living in London. And I met Marco Pierre White. And that's when I started really cooking and seeing, not even cooking, just seeing the incredible potential that the human imagination had in food. And this was 1984. It was a crazy time. It was like English food still wasn't good. Now London might be the top restaurant city in Europe. Yeah. You know, it's very intense. So Marco Pierre White, who was kind of the enfant terrible of the Michelin set back then, yeah. British, where did, where did you meet him? You... Uh, he came, they, they revamped and rebuilt the pub that I was working in called the Six Bells. And he came in, hired as a chef to make it something a little bit more. And it was, I believe it was a Watney's pub. Maybe that was the mm -hmm. money behind it. And he had, you know, like lobster with tarragon and, and roe butter on yeah. a pub menu. And like some people got it. They had this beautiful garden. It's right in the middle of King's Road, just down from the drugstore where all the punks hung out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a wild experience. And he was untamed and super smart and very demanding and really abusive. And yeah, so he was kind of Gordon Ramsay before Gordon Ramsay. Well, he taught Gordon yeah, Ramsay to called, be yeah, Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. Exactly. And so so how, did you say, hey, I'm Mario from America. Can I work in your kitchen? Or how, Well, what because happened? I was a bartender, they, when they moved into the kitchen, they said, well, oh, you go to the Cordon Bleu. Why yeah. don't you make the... Why don't you make the the chips? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, sure, I'll make the chips, whatever. And you know, then he had this other guy, and I kind of worked as the third guy on the line. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you get to actually work with him? Oh much? yeah, there and, was only three of us. And Marco was one of the guys. He was, he was the head there. chef. Oh, cool. He was yeah. cooking on the line. He was making, you know, I'd had to make, you know, seven pounds of Bear Blanc every day, and I had to make, you know, three gallons of uh, his version of Hollandaise, which was a suspension as opposed to an emulsion. It was a mm. different, complicated thing. Um, all these years later, is there anything you took away from working with him that still he still holds true today? Two two powerful, important things. One, that you're only bound by your imagination, and man, you can think a lot of things. And this was a time before everyone was thinking of, of the chemistry of cooking. Mm -hmm. It was just more in the presentation and the simplicity and the kind of marrying of unlike ingredients. But also that you can learn as much from someone about how to do things as how to not do things. And he was a bad manager of people, and his nasty ways – Eventually faded away, but I learned a lot how to manage people by being nice to them and, and, and that you really need to lead them down the path, not force them down the path. Now, I first encountered you in the sort of mid-90s when you were at Poe yep. Restaurant on Cornelia Street, a little – how many seats in that place? 34. 34 in a very narrow little restaurant. I believe it was 13 feet across. Yes. <laughs> um but you could tell that when you first went there that you just there's like, hey, something's happening here. Like this right. food is cool and interesting and but not like pretentious and you know, it's just Well also it wasn't so much a recognizable little Italy style menu. I mean you yeah. could tell it felt Italian, but it wasn't like you recognized the dishes from your last trip to Parma. No, but I think that's what was like I said, you I remember going there and I was like, Oh, I couldn't necessarily understand what was happening, but I just knew that, yeah, it just felt a little different, but not so different that it wasn't recognizable. Well, it was the first thing I ever owned. I felt really, you know, me and Steve Crane had a really good time. It was a it was a great time to be in New York. Not everyone loved every minute of, of, their, of our food, but it was a fun, exciting building time. And all the chefs that are now owners were all like cooks and line cooks and sous chefs. Yeah, so, so. You, were, you were starting to click. You were starting to find your voice as a chef. And then in Babo was 98. Eight, yep. And that was a few blocks away, also yeah. in the West Village. Yep. Still, still in the West Village. Still there. 18 years. So you opened Bob with Joe Bastianich. Um, you're, how old are you at that point? You're? The 38. 38. And then Moto Mario, the show. Started in 95. 
So how did but how did how did a show start before you? That was way. I was at Poe. Poe was at ninety three. Yeah, but then how did they find it? How did you like? Well, when I when, did, to, when I met, did you make that leap from guy behind the line to Mario guy Battaglia? behind the line with the TV show? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was those years. I mean, you know, I was still answering the phone and doing all the reservations. That was back before we were shooting a daily show. So I would shoot, I would shoot sixty four shows in two weeks. And then, you know, and I would, we were only open for dinner at that point, so then I'd just go to dinner. But how, how did you end up on TV? You know, I met a guy at a party at one of those uh, Meals on Wheels parties. Yeah. How did you like to be on TV? I'm like, hey. yeah, right, get away from me. Yeah. And uh, it happened to be um, Jonathan Lynn, who was at that point the talent guy. And uh, I met Reese uh, and Reese Schoenberg, who was the founder of the Food Network. It was back in the days when it wasn't a lot of what it was. Yeah. The only um, daily show was uh, Robin Leach's show, you know, in that <laughs> weird studio. And, <laughs> It was just an interesting time. I was lucky enough to be uh, to stay on TV for a while, and uh, I enjoyed it. My style of TV kind of banter was developed having watched a bunch of the shows where people silently cut an onion or cut an onion and talked about cutting the onion. Mm -hmm. I realized after cutting four or five onions, I'd talked about onions. So I talked about the dish itself or the history or the perspective of whatever it happened to be that I was making because I was enthused by it and I was excited by it. And I think there was an informational flow as well as a technical flow that made the show to some people very annoying, but to a lot of people, they kind of enjoyed that constant reminder of the little details about technique and history together. Yeah, I, I think I was a fan and like, like a lot of my contemporaries, I think a couple of times me and uh, my several editor-in-chief colleague, Adam Sachs, were on as, as the guys who got to sit on the counter mm -hmm. um, with Alan Richmond. It was Richmond. fun. Yeah, and I, what we were always amazed by, uh, which I think was a defining characteristic of the show, was the fact that you were cooking multiple dishes while schooling us on all these other subjects like Italian history Simultaneously, like you, the fact that you could, you know, that whole cliche, can you talk and walk at the same time? But when did you realize that you could do that? When did you realize that you could actually talk extemporaneously on all sorts of subjects while continuing to cook a dish? Well, once you become very familiar with the dish, it's very much like acting. You know, like when you do your acting class, they basically have you peel an orange seven times while you're practicing your monologue because it takes your eyes away from concentrating on your work and the work becomes something that flows. So I I was familiar with all the dishes. It wasn't like I made them up that day. Yeah. Like So if any dish was relatively new to me, I would practice it before I went on TV in the restaurant. You know, it would be on the restaurant menu. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like the Zen tea service, the idea behind doing the tea in the Zen world is that your your hands do something that they're so practiced with that your mind can jump away from it and become, you know, at one with the world or at one with whatever that you want to discuss. And my hands were relatively talented, or at least they knew what they were doing, so that it gave my mind something to fill the time with. And I've always had a restless mind, so I'm always thinking. In the same way that when I'm driving down the street, I'm adding up every license plate that I see. <laughs> it's just like, maybe it's a little OCD, maybe it's a little crazy, just but a like, little I'm like, just filling it up a little bit. Um, so you did Maltimario for how many years? Oh, I think about six. Six years. And at what point did you realize you sort of had a acumen for business, and how much did partnering with Joe form that sort of acumen? Well, I think Joe and I both brought a lot of excitement and knowledge of our part of the business to the to the equation. But we both learned a lot from each other about how the business works and how to manage it. Joe certainly knew the numbers before I was paying attention to the numbers. I looked at gross and cost and that was it. And, and I, Joe had done a, a brief stint on Wall Street. As kind Joe of had done guy. a brief yeah. stint on Wall Street as well as a brief stint traveling around, you know, all the sexy places yeah. in Italy, working at their wineries, looking at the restaurants, understanding it. I, I don't think his Wall Street experience gave him much insight into the numbers, just his real understanding of the of full equation of what profit can actually 
R&D and what gross sales really represent. And not only getting butts in chairs, but managing the cost so that you can do your best. It's not necessarily putting a revenue and a cost curve together. It's more like understanding, listen, if you don't know how much bleach is and they tell you it's $6 and you buy it, you're an idiot because bleach is 79 cents a gallon. <laughs> and you have to know all your costs. Like, you know, what everything from toilet paper to how much the light is to to what, you know, wages are and, and, and how to properly do whatever you have to do. It's a, it's a crazy thing. And knowing all of it makes you a better business person, just as if you were uh, in the landscaping business and didn't know how much a gallon of gas costs or how much a lawnmower cost. And then like... I- how would you describe your relationship with Joe now? I kind of almost see it as this Jagger Richard sort of things. Both of you guys are kind of, you've got your own sort of industries and corporations going, but you're, you're still partners. And like, let's compare it now to Bobo 15 years ago. Well, it's it's similar in that we both have opinions that are quite strong about both the back and the front of the house. And we both do not mind backing down to the other partner, provided the other partner presents a case that is indisputable. So whether it's a dish or whether it's the way we put things down or the style of the of the tabletop or even the feeling of the bar, you know, Joe and I had a long discussion and some battles about the new cocktail bar at La Sirena. Yeah, so La Sirena is your new restaurant right. at the Maritime, at the Maritime Hotel, Hotel, 9th Avenue and 16 and 17. 16? Yeah. Joe and I are still uh, vital, vibrant partners who love working with each other, and we have a lot of other things going on. But like working together on this project, has put us because we haven't opened a restaurant in New York in ten years. It really put us back on comfortable footing where we can say whatever we want to each other without having to worry about insulting each other. So you got Del Posto, and I think if you look at Del Posto now, it's very much Mark Ladner's restaurant from a culinary standpoint. People go there and they expect Mark's cooking. Right. When you guys opened it, though, it was Mario and Joe and Lydia Bastianich. Right. What was that like working with Joe's mom? Well, she's on a professional every, level. She is everything golden and truth about light and magnificent culture. She is the Italian nonna or the mamma in a way that was perfect. She she would never tell you you were wrong. But she's pretty no BS also, though. Uh, yeah. Absolutely no BS. She wouldn't tell you you were wrong. You were just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> she's, uh, she's a fantastic person to work with. I mean, she's just everything right. She's always positive. She's got a great vibe. She's, when, they, when she's in the kitchen or around the kitchen, everyone just loves being around there. It's, it's, it, it was a great thing. And we morphed away from Mario and Lydia, and it became pretty much Mark and his team. Yeah. So then how often do you then – I think people always want to know with the, with the chef like you – you're you've got all these restaurants. You're checking up on them. You're traveling. How are you at home, just like cooking a meal? Do you ever get to cook a meal in, in Manhattan? It's Monday. I'm cooking tonight. What, what are we I having? cook Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Really? Yeah. In and your, I cook breakfast every day. Like when? So if you're cooking dinner, you and your, for Susie and your wife, or the, if the kids are around. Yeah. Or, ben, to, Beno's in college. Leo's at home. Hmm. He comes home at four thirty. We have dinner around six thirty. Uh, today we're having uh, it's meatless Monday, so we're having eggplant nice. meatballs and escarole salad. And, you take uh, eggplant meatballs? Yeah. What is, what, what's that? You take the eggplant, you roast it really hot, uh-huh. so it's still medium rare inside. Then you chop it up into pieces, and you put it through the meat grinder, and then you mix it with everything that goes in a meatball. Wow, breadcrumbs. A little bit of eggs, a little bit of breadcrumbs. We're, we're using a we're using a gluten free breadcrumb today oh just God. to see how it comes. Oh I don't God. know. I'm not I'm not against it. Well, it's only fill. And then you fry it in olive oil, or do you no? Bake? Then I po- I poach them in the sauce. Oh wow. Yeah. Where did this idea come from? Is, uh, they, is this they, a thing? Been ma- yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. They make them. They make them with Swiss chard in the Veneto. They make them in the South with uh, potatoes sometimes, or sometimes zucchini. It's almost like a frittelle, yeah. except you poach it, so it doesn't get that hot heat. Yeah, and you have to cook it a little longer. They're delicious. Oh man! So that you're having that with what else you having? Uh, escarole salad and a farro salad. Now, when you do, you just 
go around the corner to Oto and just like, hey, can I have some ingredients? Or do you actually shop for ingredients? Or what do you do? I like to go to Eatly right when it opens. Oh, Eatly. What's this? Exactly? It's What's this grocery <laughs> store we have that's fantastic. I forgot we got to talk about Eatly. <laughs> <laughs> but I go there on Monday mornings at like 930, right before it opens. I kind of make sure that it's all clean and beautiful. I mean, everything looks fantastic the moment we open. A little different than maybe after 4 o'clock yeah. after the onslaught on a Saturday. But it's, you know, it's just interesting to see how, you know, and I like to walk around and see what's up. And also the produce is really good. I mean, everything there is what I like, and it, and it's always presented in a way that's impressive. But I'm just as likely to go to Gristiti's if I have to yeah. that day, mm-hmm. or Citarella around the corner from my house. I kind of feel like I've paid for Benno's freshman year in college with the amount of money I've spent at Italy. Um, I wish you would have covered that Mexican vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that was his, not my vacation. Exactly. Yeah, Italy, if you haven't been, listener, I would urge you to go next time you're in New York City or Chicago, correct? Chicago. Yeah. Next up, we're building one down across the street from where we can yeah, see right, right here. Yeah, right here in One World Trade. You know, listen, it's not cheap, but you get what you pay for. And you get incredible quality imported mozzarella and beautiful prosciutto and the meat counter is spectacular, the fish counter is spectacular. Um, but it's cra- an experience. It's, it's an experience. Yeah, plus if there's you places can also to eat. And you can also shop there, yeah. but it's an experience beyond just about anything else retail. But I'm the guy who actually shops for groceries there. Most well, people are too. there eating at one of the numerous restaurants and little the gelato bar. And the part of the business plan, correct me if I'm wrong, the business model is that like on the meat counter, if you're not selling that great dry aged ribeye, you will then sell it at the restaurant that serves the meat or Precisely. the fish before that. that we're not going to let any fish go back. Well, it's right. it's, go to it, the, the it's less about the meat and it's more about the fish and the produce because if they're great on the on the counter on one day and they're still great on the yeah. second day, they're not as presentably beautiful, yeah. so you'll fillet it. Yeah. And then the third day we sell it in the restaurant, which is still five days shorter than a lot of restaurants get their fish. But you, yeah, so you kind of have very little to no waste. Well, correct? that's the idea. The, mo- the model and also the model is – it's not necessarily the most profitable to sell the food at the restaurant because the labor cost is really high. Mm. So the real model is to sell 55% at least groceries, 45% restaurants. But the restaurants are what some people go in there for and then they end up shopping anyway. Yeah, but there's probably not a lot of people who are going to the fish counter to buy langoustine. But you know that you can sell that langoustine on the menu if right. you have to. And also knowing that if, if it's the kind of customer that we want that goes in there expecting to find the langoustine, so we'll stock them all the time. Yeah, and they look cool when you right. walk by. You're and like, well. like all of the stuff. I mean, our razor clams, all the different things that we have in there that are spectacular. Our uni is beautiful. I mean, all the things that we got. And we're, we're lucky enough that we can move it through. We don't have to worry about selling it on the counter because yeah. we're going to cook it tomorrow. I've, I have very much come around to razor clams, surprisingly, because uh. I'm not like the a huge seafood aficionado, but I kind of done ceviche style, right. and they put them back in the shell yeah, and yeah. slurp them down. Pasternak does those so well. It's and one of my at favorite Esco things. restaurant, yeah. yeah, I really do enjoy those. What What is sold surprisingly well at, at Italy that you didn't think it might? Housewares. Really? I was surprised that all those weird Italian designy things oh my God. made out of like weird plastic and orange. I, I don't want to, I hate to say this, but Alessi drives me nuts. Those weird like teapot kettles with the orange rubber and the like, I just, oh God. People dig that stuff. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Like, and there's a bunch of, you know, there's like those cartel like brands. The car- cartel is like the plastic chairs. Mm-hmm. They have this other stuff in there. I'm like, that is the weirdest stuff. It only looks good if Sophia Loren's standing next to it. <laughs> and yet it sells, like people just love Italian design. All right. Before we go. We've got our lightning round. Okay. Either or questions. All right. You got to ask, answer them. Ah, so we're going to get started. Um, Bologna or Roma? Bologna. Talk to me about Bologna. Like why? Bologna is a medieval city. It is, if, you're, if, if you've traveled a lot of Italy, Florence is obviously the Renaissance. 
Bologna is a little bit older, a little bit less elaborately designed. The portici or the the, the covered sidewalks mm-hmm. were a result of the town building out over what used to be the street. Mm. So there's 28 miles of covered sidewalks. So even in a bad weather day, you can be shopping and enjoying the city. It is so beautiful and medieval. So it's a little darker. It's a little more mysterious. And you're much less likely to hear English, Japanese, or German on the streets. Which this Not is, this that I bata- avoid my tourists, but it's what I love. This is very Batali-esque. I asked you about Bologna, and you didn't even mention food. You gave me a history lesson. Well, no, right, but food yeah. is, the food of Bologna is considered the core of, it's called, Bologna is la dota, la rosa, and la grassa. Inglese? Uh, the um, uh, endowed, <laughs> the smart, and the fat. <laughs> and if you think what Emilia Romagna is, it is all of the super fine uh, metal mechanics and engineering base of all mm, of Italy. Yes. That's where Maseratis are made. That's exactly. where you know. Uh, that's where the Lamborghinis are made. It's where Tortellini is made. It's mm. where Lambrusco is made. It is a heaven of gastronomy Bolognese. and a beautiful place. Get Bolognese. Right, Bolognese, Tortellini, Tagliatelle, Tortellini. Prosciutto di Parma from Prosciutto around di Parma, that Parmigiano, Parmigiano Reggiano, Aceto Balsamico. Um, driver or putter? Drive for show, putt for dough. So you want the Give putter? Give me a putter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vermentino or Verdicchio? Vermentino. Explain, give me, give me the difference. Verdicchio is a little thinner for me mm-hmm. and a little bit more acidic. Mm-hmm. Vermentino, particularly the Tuscan one, although I'm, I love the one, the, the Vermentino di Galura is, is probably the, the recognizable one. But for me, the Tuscan one, particularly Grattamaco and anywhere in and around that kind of Tuscan coast just above Il Pelicano, mm. it makes it so happy for me. <laughs> you like the Il Pelicano. I do. Not a terrible place to stay. No. Um, locks or sable? Sable. You're, See, you're, for me, I, locks for me says belly locks, and it usually means it's a little salty. Sable for me is just a little bit more sophisticated. It's a little lush. And a little less harder, a little more difficult to find. Yeah. You're a Russ and Daughters guy, right? Big time. But I like Acme Smoked Fish. Have you ever been to Acme? Um, yeah, they, and they supply a lot of the, exactly. the joints here in They were just on the chew last week, and I was really excited about it. They brought me some smoked whitefish to die for. Very nice. Very kind of them. Exactly. I love that New York is basically everyone's kind of a Jew, kind of Italian. Yeah, You're exactly. Part of this, one There's of the no same. difference between the Jews and the Italians. Uh, They're like the Koreans. <laughs> Fresh or dried pasta? If you had to choose the rest of your life. Dry. Dry. Yeah. Fresh is for special occasions, but like dry pasta, it's just got, it's that al dente slickness yeah. that when you bite it and it's perfectly cooked, it is something unbelievable. Yeah. That said, lasagna is made of fresh pasta That's and right. I love that. But the Italians literally eat dried pasta five days a week and fresh pasta yeah. one or two and days I think people a week. don't understand this notion that, yeah, it's not always better. And if you want something like linguine vongole, you want dry. Yeah, it has to yeah. be dry. It has to be dried. Anchovies or sardines? Anchovies. How do you like your anchovies? I like them either raw and marinated, like alici marinati, like you have on the Amalfi Coast, or the when like the white ones. Or, yeah, the white no, ones. That's yeah, what they call them here: yeah. white anchovies. Um, and then I, but I also like the ones that are the Spanish ones, packed in really good olive oil. Mm. And you eat those, and they have something called uh, bodas. You take one like the alici marinati, mm-hmm. the boquerones, or the white ones, and the one salted one, mm. and you put them together Whoa. on top of a piece of tomato with a little red onion. You eat it all at once. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow I, explodes <laughs> right there on the scene. Just, um, eight and a half or dolce vita? Dolce vita. Wow, really? Yeah. Oh, but. Eight and a half, uh, he's so cool in the black suit and the glasses. No, there's no question, but La Dolce Vita is just a sexier all-around picture. It, it is sexier. Uh, less, less conflicted. Yeah. <laughs> Frenette Branca or Brancamente? 
My grandma was a Fernet Branca gal. It's still not my favorite tomorrow. Neither of those are. <laughs> like, there's a lot of my line cooks that have put the, the Fernet Branca family through their colleges. <laughs> but like for me, after two of those, it's just like I am I'm sated. I'll go through a bottle of Averna. <laughs> but after two Fernets, either Branca well, or Menta, I'm done. You're only supposed to have one glass. Okay. Um, Is that what they've told you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Oh, this is, I like this one. I have thoughts on this one. Burrata or mozzarella di bufala? It depends on where I am. But mozzarella, given my given the choice of what I would see in the American market, always mozzarella di bufala. And if I'm in Puglia, I'm having burrata. But I mean, yeah. generally, it's a, a mozzarella di bufala, particularly in and around Vesuvius in Naples, is where it tastes all at once like a panna cotta and a, a kiss mm. and a little bit of a tangy, super bright lactic acid that makes it just the right thing. It's like pudding. Yeah, it is spectacular. Yeah. Broccoli Rob or broccolini? Broccolini's a scam. Broccoli no, Rob. It is not. It's so awesome. It's it, so easy to cook and you can like grill it. But it you has can... no bitter component. There's absolutely no. But it doesn't have to. Why does everything have to have a bitter component? Well, because it's a broccoli, dude. It's a cruciferous <laughs> vegetable. It's supposed to have bitter. Was it invented in a lab somewhere or yeah, something? Yeah, I'm sure it was invented by people that don't. It was probably invented by the Bush administration because they didn't like broccoli. <laughs> they didn't like broccoli. Um, okay. Bistec Fiorentino or dry aged ribeye? Uh you know, I'll be honest. We get the same – we get those two cuts from the same animal. So for me, I prefer more age. Mm-hmm. The beefsteak is almost rarely – is rarely aged, particularly in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. They cut it and they barely cook it and yeah. they serve it raw. I like my meat a little closer to medium rare and I like it to have a lot more char on it. And I like that rich mm. American yeah. – Grass – beef fed – excuse me, corn fedness. Grass fed corn finished. Yeah. That is just – man, Italians come over here and they're like, this is the best beef ever. <laughs> and we know it and it's okay. <gasps> All right, last question. I, I'm assuming I know the answer to this one, but who knows? Butter or olive oil? Oh, give me a break. I, 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 I may put some butter on my olive oil, but it'll start <laughs> with olive oil. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Mario Batali, thank you very much. Thanks, bud. This podcast is produced by Belle Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Caboli, and additional assistance from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Look for new episodes every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to our print magazine, In the Flesh, at bonappetit.com slash summergrilling. We have a pretty good deal right now. Three issues for $5 at bonappetit.com slash summergrilling. 